there, it's Amy, and I'm here with Emily. We're going to do a quick intro to this episode around how to be more food allergy friendly with my friend Kathleen, the allergy chef. I can't wait for folks to hear this episode because it is one of our longest conversations to date, but that's only because there is a ton of knowledge and goodness packed in. So if you're a parent who is dealing with food allergies in your kids, or frankly, if you're a parent period, who encounters food allergies, which by the way is all of us, then this is an episode not to miss. I can't wait to hear it. I don't care that it's longer. I think that it's going to be one of our most value-packed episodes. So tell me one thing to tease out that you took away from it that you just, that kind of blew your mind or that you loved. What did I love? I mean, I loved so much about it. So that's hard to say. What is one thing that blew my mind? I didn't realize that food allergies, not just food intolerances, I can talk, can show up in so many different ways than just like what I picture, which is anaphylaxis and needing an EpiPen. Hmm. And to me as a parent, that was really eye-opening because I often have folks come to me who say like, my kid doesn't go to the bathroom for like five days and should I be concerned about this? And Kathleen, because of her own experience, just has such a deep knowledge on the subject and some really awesome tips around identifying food allergies that might not be as obvious through like the testing system that so many of us think of. And so I think that would be a real takeaway for any parent who notices things in their kids and may want to advocate for them in a way that isn't currently happening. Yeah, with like their doctors. That makes a lot of sense to me because there are many people who just assume their child is backed up or has mm-hmm. a bad digestive system, but they haven't been able to even think about the possibility of an allergy or severe intolerance of something being the result of not bad genes or bad luck, but yeah, you know, a food they can't ingest. Exactly. And I think, you know, as parents, advocacy is so important and really knowing our kids. And there is a lot of that here, specifically related to food allergies, but also in general. You also reminded me that I want to give a caveat that Kathleen and I do give in like the middle of the episode, but just from the get-go, I want to be super clear that neither Kathleen or I are doctors. We are simply people who work with food, who have seen a lot of different things. And so... I hope it's obvious, but you should always talk to your doctor first. And our advice shouldn't be substituted for your doctor's advice. In my mind, this conversation really talks about like next level things. So if you are feeling like something's wrong and it's not being identified, how can you increase your knowledge and then use that to work with your medical support staff that you have in your life to get to the bottom of things that might be going on in your family? And with that, I'm going to say something from my own life experience that when you said the word advocacy, I think always pushing your own medical team and going with your gut is very important because sometimes who you're working with just doesn't have familiarity and they might say, I don't know, maybe it'll work. So I think if it's a safe thing to do, you can always trial elimination diets for your own sanity. If you're feeling like you're not super supported by your staff and you're not doing anything dangerous, don't be afraid to just try it. Um, but yeah, you should definitely be pushing these issues with your doctor and be like, this seems like what's going on and do your own research. Because yeah. That's a good point. I just didn't want anyone to think that our advice was like a substitute for working with a doctor. Cause no, agreed. If you don't love your doctor, find a new one, please. <laughs> or, yeah. 
Or find one who, who focuses on those topics. Right. Find Maybe. someone who will work with you or who's really expert. And that's like, that's a whole conversation for another day. Because I think no, right. we both have a lot to say around advocacy for your family in the healthcare system. And we should, pro- we, should, we should add that to our list of things to talk about. One other thing, just like a tip I want to give going into this episode. So it is about an hour and a half long. I know that's a lot of time for busy parents, which is who's listening. So I wanted to share something I learned recently that has revolutionized my podcast listening. I use Overcast as my podcasting app, so I can't say exactly how to do it in all apps. But in Overcast and in many other podcast apps, you can actually listen at a faster speed than the episode was recorded. So my husband has tested this and he says 1.25x is like a real sweet spot where it speeds things up, but not so fast that everyone sounds like chipmunks. I've been playing around with like 1.4 or 1.5x, which means you could listen to an hour and a half episode in about an hour instead of an hour and a half. And it takes a little bit of getting used to, but it allows you to consume more impactful content in less time. So I thought that might be helpful for someone who's like, gosh, I will never get through this hour and a half episode. If you want to just test out that technology and see like, what's the sweet spot for you and you can get more in less time, which is you know, always yeah. a goal for me. No, I agree. That's a great tip. I'm glad you told me that. <laughs> So without making this even longer, let's go ahead and dive into my interview with Kathleen, the allergy chef. Hey everybody, this is Amy and I am so excited to have you here today because I have someone who has really become a friend over the past year on the podcast today, but she's also super expert in her area of knowledge. And today we have Kathleen, the allergy chef on It's funny because Kathleen and I were just talking before we started recording and I was saying, I know like a lot about the inner workings of your business, but I don't know a lot about your actual business, like the work that you do with people. And part of that is because Kathleen and I over the past year have been in an accountability group. So anyone who has ever set out to accomplish a goal or maybe have their own business knows that sometimes it's difficult to like operate in the abyss of no formal deadlines or a boss looking over your shoulder. And our accountability group, I'm so appreciative for, has really served as a place that can keep me on track with doing things like putting out this podcast on a weekly basis. And Kathleen has been a large part of that. So Kathleen, Thank you for being here and thank you for all your support. I'm so excited to get to know a little bit more of your story around this food allergy journey and then in particular to dig in today for our listeners on how we can all be more allergy friendly and that might look like you know, being more accommodating to folks around us who are struggling with food allergies or if we are a parent as imagine all of our listeners are, and we end up finding out that our kids have food allergies. I know that can sometimes be a daunting journey and you have some awesome resources and advice that you could share today. So I'll stop talking. (laughs) Kathleen is laughing because she knows I will never stop talking. (laughs) She knows me well enough. Okay. I am going to stop talking though, because Kathleen, I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about I know you weren't born the allergy chef, so how did you become the allergy chef? Well, first off, I am so happy to be here today. Um, it's 
always a joy to just hang out with you. And now we get to do it with your listeners. So it's a win-win for everyone. Definitely. Uh, you're right. I wasn't born the allergy chef. So a little bit about me. I was born most likely, hindsight being 2020, um, with a handful of food allergies. It was undiagnosed. It was things like eggs, chocolate, um, dairy was always an issue for me. Um, and there were just a few other things. One of my most obvious obvious symptoms is unexplainable massive amounts of weight gain. So I was like the fattest kid you'd ever meet. I was 60 pounds in kindergarten. I was a really big kid. Um, and, you know, it was just, it was always overlooked. It was always swept under the table. But what's frustrating is they knew I had seasonal outdoor allergies, okay? I was very allergic to grass, trees, pretty much outside, right? Um, it's not uncommon for people with food allergies to also have seasonal allergies. So for me now, being who I am and knowing what I know, to know that so many doctors didn't make the connection, I can't lie, it makes me angry sometimes to think about. Like it yeah. really does. When I was a teenager, um, I went on a trip with the school and on the flight back, basically, I essentially had the equivalent of a mild seizure for about 30 hours straight. And when we, it was like a big deal. Like I I had to be moved on the plane. They were ready to make an emergency landing. Like it was this big deal. The moment we landed, I was like whisked away by EMS and they were asking me a million questions and they just kept asking me what happened, what happened. And I just kept saying the same thing. I ate the food. I got sick. I ate the food. That's when all this started. What did you eat? I ate this pasta, like literally dairy and wheat. That's what I ate. Okay. Yeah. And they ran every test under the book, under the sun, right? Except for a food allergy test. Even though I kept saying, I ate the food, that's when it started. Well, we're going to run this test. I ate the food, that's, you know, every specialist kept asking the same question. And no one seemed to, to hone in on it, you know? And this is one of those moments in my life where, I mean, I'm a person of faith. And so, you know, as a Christian, sometimes we know that, you know, God will allow things to happen to us. And this is for me, that moment where it's like, Mm -hmm. I get it. Like, again, hindsight being 2020, had I been properly diagnosed at that stage of the game, I probably wouldn't do the things that I do now. Mm -hmm. Right. I had to suffer to be able to help others. Like, I get that like completely. And at the same time, having gone through it, it's my mission to make sure no other kid has to go through that because that's crazy. When a kid seizes up for that long and it starts right after they ate food, come on, please. Can we just like, you know? Yeah. You're giving me the chills because the language that you used around, I was thinking intuition, but I can totally see how from a faith-based perspective, it's even something larger was telling you, you're repeating over and over again. I ate the food. I got sick. Like something in you was telling you that that's what it was and how scary and frustrating to be a high school aged kid who isn't ready and shouldn't be expected to have to really advocate for themselves, especially health wise to feel like you're not being heard and people aren't pursuing those things. And I love that you have been able to come to a place where you feel like that's what led you on this journey to be able to help others. But I know as parents, all of us listening are thinking like, that's also insane. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, here's the kicker. It's like, I, at my max was probably about 450 pounds. I mean, I was huge. The inflammation response was insane. I couldn't go outside without being in excruciating pain. 
if you just barely touched me, I was in pain. Like mm. I was always in pain. I had nonstop symptoms and it was just always swept under the rug. And it's like, how do you deal with that? You know, and it's, it's interesting because when our second oldest child, when he was a first grader, he was a big kid. Mm. And I looked at that and I was like, there's something wrong, you know? And for me, it was always, I knew what happened to me as a kid and I wasn't going to let the same thing happen to him. And so it was like, you know, I worked with this pediatrician. She was really awesome. Now he was born allergic to dairy. So food allergies and, you know, him, they were already known. Well, she kind of did the same thing. She ran every other test under the sun, but then she was good enough to say, let's do another food allergy panel just to be sure. Well, it turned out he was allergic to more stuff than just dairy. And we eliminated those items. And all of a sudden, he stopped gaining weight. You know, it was, it's one of those things where people don't realize sometimes that food allergies, a lot of, okay, a lot of us are used to anaphylaxis, right? So there's a difference between food allergy and food intolerance. That's the first thing. People hear things like lactose intolerant, and they assume it's the same as a dairy allergy. It's not right? Mm -hmm. So a food allergy uses certain mechanisms in the body. Okay. We're familiar with IgG, IgA, Ig. Well, there's like three or four different IgGs that mediate this issue and you have mast cells involved and it's, it's a whole system within the body that creates these responses to what the body perceives is a foreign protein, right? Right. So that's your food allergy. Now the most extreme symptom, anaphylaxis, pretty much you can die. The milder symptoms are things like, you know, itchy eyes, weight gain, moody, instability, um, mental health issues. Like you can have a whole range of symptoms that won't kill you that are still related to a food allergy. Interesting. Okay. But then you have your food intolerance. Now your food intolerance can affect you anywhere between the moment you eat it for four days or longer. Whereas generally a food allergy is the moment you eat it up to four hours. That's the general accepted window of allergic reaction versus intolerance. Okay. So I want to dig into that because it makes me wonder, you said something about like, um, you know, sort of like mental confusion as a symptom of a, a potential symptom of food allergy. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. So, so that only lasts for four hours after you've had the affecting food versus an intolerance would last something more like four days, which means it could be near constant, right? Well, so that's the interesting part. It has to do with how fast it kicks in, not how long it lasts. Okay. See, I'm glad I asked because that that feels really important. Like give you an example. I had, um, a really bad reaction in May. It was at the end of May. Um, we went to a restaurant and of course I had my full face respirator on cause I can't leave the house without it. And there was a leak and it was a slow leak and probably about 30 to 40 minutes into dinner. Um, Carlton noticed like I was basically a goner and he had to, he and his brother basically had to drag me out of the restaurant. And so you, you know, for, for a fact right there, it's an allergic response, not an intolerance response, because it happened within 30 minutes of exposure. Okay. The reaction then went biphasic, which means it came in waves. So there was that severe reaction where essentially I'm paralyzed, I can't move, I can't function. And for lack of a better word, it's like 
It's like you have no energy and you're dead inside. Yeah. I, I don't know how else to explain it. So there was that first wave reaction. And then he got me home. And then I started to get undressed. And with the mask off. And just the exposure to what was on my clothes caused a second wave of reaction. So then there was the issue. There was that whole thing. Um, when it was all said and done, pretty much I almost died in bed. He actually called 911. They wouldn't wow. treat because um, they deemed it as non-anaphylaxis, even though based on the definition of anaphylaxis, it was anaphylaxis because more than one system was involved and it was all critical organ systems. So you had brain, throat, uh, lungs, uh, heart. You had multiple organs involved. Yeah. And um, all in all, the reaction lasted something like four to six hours. So, okay. So it kicked in immediately and it lasted longer than even that four hour window. And so I think that's an interesting distinction because for folks who are listening, and I know there's a lot of talk of food intolerance now, but to me, food allergy has always been like you eat a peanut and then you need an EpiPen shot if you are allergic to it because you have this anaphylactic reaction. So it's interesting to understand the different ways it could look. Yeah. Well, so to give you an example, I actually have, um, so for years I've done a food journal and the food, I always tell people the food journal is king. Um, in the allergy world, they say the oral challenge is gold, but I actually take it to the new level and I say food journal is king because if you're dealing with an intolerance, it won't show up in an oral challenge because mm -hmm. they keep you there for a few hours. And then they also have you exercise because exercise can agitate the histamine response and generally speed up a potential food allergy response, right? Interesting. And so if you don't respond on the spot in the office and then you respond a day later, they may not take you as seriously. So by keeping a food journal, you can figure out exactly what happens when you eat whatever. I have over 200 symptoms based on what I've eaten, how much of it, was it a derivative or the actual item, or was it inhaled, and how long I was exposed for. Now, I am the exception, not the rule. Right. I'm definitely the exception, right? But it gives you kind of that window. It kind of lets you peek into that world. And your idea of it is a very common idea. And that's because of what we see in media. We see it on TV, you know, like in those movies where it's like, let's put some peanut oil on his thing and, you know, let's sabotage his EpiPen. You <laughs> will murder him, right? And I so watch different shows than you clearly, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was on some cop drama show at one point. Um, but that's a very common thought process. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is, is you can have a milder reaction. You can have a milder reaction that lasts a long time. You can feel like death without needing an EpiPen. You know, um, yeah. for example, I have a class four cashew allergy. That's pretty high. Um, all it takes is a couple of cashews. And I want to die. I'm in so much pain, but it's not considered anaphylaxis because generally it's only one system involved and it doesn't kill me. It like doesn't close my throat. It doesn't, you know, shut down my heart or lungs, et cetera. But you feel like you're going to die from the pain. Right. So it just goes to show that there are different types. Um, you can have life-threatening reactions and non-life-threatening reactions and biphasic reactions, meaning it happens in waves, um, so more than once. Yeah. You're, there's so much goodness in here. 
badness, but goodness in terms of the work that I do and the way I think about taking ownership of your health. Because I think some of what you're pointing out is something that I experienced when I was trying to pinpoint like what is wrong with my stomach and why am I curled up in bed every day after work where I like cannot function. And my doctor was basically like, we'll do a colonoscopy and endoscopy. And then if it doesn't show anything, then sorry, like there's nothing wrong with you. And I was like, there's something wrong. This is not normal. And it's actually what set me on this path to doing the work that I do now was navigating cleaning up my diet and saying like, you know, this doesn't make me feel good. I'm not going to eat it. And so I've kept a food journal. Um, I don't currently because I feel like I have gotten past some of those things that I struggled with in the past. And I know what makes me feel good now. But as parents, I think there's also just so much there around listening to your body listening to the way your kids talk about their bodies and taking ownership beyond saying like, okay, prick my skin with these things and see what happens, that sometimes the proof is in the pudding. Like, I don't feel good after I eat this. And I know that because I have been tracking it. And now whether someone says I have an allergy or not, like, why would I eat this thing that doesn't serve me? That doesn't make me feel my best, right? And it's not so black and white. Yeah. Well, and you know, like you said, you don't have an allergy. Well, the the nice thing is, is we have the language intact for you. Say so you have an intolerance, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it lets people know I can't eat the food, but you won't kill me if you accidentally feed it to me. Sure. Right? Because it's interesting in the food allergy world, that's like a huge touchy topic. Mm-hmm. People get upset where a lot of people with an allergy get upset when people without an allergy claim they have an allergy if they only have an intolerance or if they don't like a food. And so they feel they, that those people do a disservice to the community. And to a certain degree, they do. And at the same time, they're bringing more awareness to the problem. Right. Um, the whole gluten-free thing can also be an issue because are you celiac disease? Are you non-celiac gluten intolerant? Are you just gluten intolerant? Or do you just not want to eat gluten mm-hmm. because you know, you're on a fad diet or whatever the case may be? You know, or are you paleo, but you just say you're not? And so it's like the language that people use can sometimes be this really touchy topic in the world. But I always tell people, just use the language that's appropriate for you. If you have an allergy, say it. I have an allergy. So you were saying that you recommend that people use the language that works for them. And I really appreciate that because I know that sometimes it can be hard to navigate where we're trying to advocate for ourselves, but we also don't want to be doing other folks a disservice in our own advocacy, right? So I think that's a really helpful perspective that I'm so glad that you shared. So Kathleen, when we scheduled this interview, I wanted to dig into like how to be more food allergy friendly, kind of a guide for all of us parents who are walking through the world feeding kids. And to, in my mind, there are two pieces of that. The first is, what if we are a parent of a kid who either has a food allergy or we suspect might have a food allergy? And then to me, the second piece is, okay, our family isn't struggling with food allergies, but naturally we'll be interacting with children and families that are and how can we be like supportive partners in that process. And so when I think about the first one, like I'm a parent of a kid who has a food allergy or I think they might have a food allergy, I don't want to gloss over that there are some most common allergens. I know you are 
um, we'll call it fortunate because I think it's really served you in serving others. Fortunate enough to have lots of allergies and be super sensitive to um, what that looks like. But can you talk to us a little bit about like the top eight and where someone might start if they suspected that their kid was having an allergic reaction that didn't look exactly like that anaphylaxis that I was describing previously? All right. So those are all great questions. I'm going to I'm actually going to step us back for just a moment yeah. because earlier you mentioned uh, children and I wanted to impart this on the listeners, especially a lot of people don't realize that behavior can be a sign of a food allergy or a food intolerance, especially in children. I'll give you an example. So we've got four kids. Our oldest is gluten and dairy free for cognitive functioning. And now that he's an adult, he decides he wants to live like an American and eat whatever he wants. We can't stop him. That's fine. Our second oldest is allergic to wheat, dairy, and beef. He's also intolerant to eggs, and he can't consume any bovine items, and he generally can't consume red meat. Okay. Okay. Our third oldest, but this is where it really taps into what I wanted to share with you. So he can't have excessive amounts of cane sugar. He can't have food coloring, pesticides, chemicals, et cetera. So he's paleo-ish, and he eats mostly organic food. When he was five years old, he was assaulting other children. He was assaulting teachers. And I don't use that word assault lightly. One student, uh, their parents wanted him expelled, and they wanted to file a restraining order against him. Um, he was violent. He was a very difficult child very belligerent, very mouthy. And some might say that's just his personality, right? Because wow. he was pretty much born a feisty kid. It turns out he was essentially intolerant to everything he was being fed. And so in our house at that time, um, we were introducing the kids to lots of new foods, different fruits and vegetables, etc. So dessert was always on the menu. And because of that, one day he did something, and Carlton got so mad at him, he said, that's it, no dessert for a month. And all the kids, they all gasped. They were all like, oh. Like, you would have thought Carlton had issued a death warrant. You know I mean? Like, it was awful in our home to have no dessert for 30 days. And that's like. I feel him. I understand right? that. Right? You might as well have just died. And so after two weeks. We had a completely different child. He was calm. He was obedient. He didn't assault people. He was just wow. a normal child. And it was like, what happened? What, what, you know, we scrambled at that moment because what's going on here? You know, he's not getting in trouble anymore. And it was so different. Well, once his 30-day sentence, right, his little jail sentence was up, he got dessert back. After his second bite of dessert, and I don't say this lightly, he was bouncing off of the walls. He was literally jumping on the couch and throwing himself against the wall and bouncing off of it. I'm not kidding. Oh, my god! And in that moment, we immediately made the connection. We said, oh. And so that's the thing. Sometimes people just assume they have a difficult child. You know, he was misdiagnosed with ADHD like his older brother. And... Um, his older brother had been on different forms of medication, none of which actually worked. And the only thing that worked for him was change in diet. Yeah. Same thing with our third oldest. The only thing that worked for him was change in diet. What really 
drove us to figure out what was wrong with him. Um, one of the things was he... I'm so fascinated by this. You keep giving me the chills because for me, it's just a confirmation of the thing that I have always been talking about, which is like food is so powerful. And it's only through experimentation with food and observation and being in touch with our bodies and with our kids that we can even start to understand the way that foods are impacting us. And by the way, the way foods impact one person isn't the same for the next person, even in the same family, which is like frustrating and amazing. (laughs) No two people are the same. Like I can't stress that enough. And that is the same goes for the medical world. You know, you can't give two people Advil and expect the exact same result. No two people are the same. While people are generally similar they're never exactly the same. Um, and so that's something that's really important to hold on to because you've got environmental factors, you've got what they eat, you've got their genetic makeup, genetic damage that may have happened over time. So many elements, no two people are the same. But yes, okay, so going back to our third oldest, what's really interesting about him, so once we made that connection, um, right around the same time he had been prescribed medication for ADHD, which I was always a firm believer that ADHD is essentially a fake Western diagnosis. Mm. I do believe that a small percentage of people really do have it, but I also feel very firmly that it is so incredibly overdiagnosed in this country, like mm-hmm. so overdiagnosed. I feel like it's just a cheap way to say, I don't want to do the work to figure out what's really wrong with you. Um, again, I'm sure there's some people who really do have it. I know yes. some people really have it, legit. But I think a good portion of, like, when you're diagnosing a toddler with ADHD, I think you're just being lazy. Like, I'm sorry. I don't think a toddler has ADHD. I think there's something else going on. Yeah, um, you're not the only so, one. I've heard talking about this overdiagnosis ish, issue. And I think, of course, based on what you've seen firsthand, how could you not feel that way, right? Like, see- Right. Well, and so they put him on a blood pressure medication with the idea that they would slow down his blood pressure to essentially slow him down. That was the concept behind what they had done for him. Well, his heart would race and it was literally ready to explode. And he would come to me and he would say, my heart hurts. And at first I thought he meant he was sad. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, you know, you do the good mothering thing. Oh, blah, blah. And he'd be like, my heart hurts. And, you know, the first time it happened after a while, I put my hand on his chest and his chest was pounding. It was like, how could his heart not hurt? And so, you know, we laid down together and I just tried to comfort him. Mind you, he's like four or five at this stage. Yeah. Um, well, the second time it happened, I was angry. Angry, like in that way where you're like, I'm going to figure out what's going on with my kid because this is not okay. Kind enough. of angry. Like that email. Yeah, like, yeah. All of us yeah, like, moms have had yeah. that feeling. Like, I'm done. That's it. I'm going mama bear on this. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to tolerate this, you know, because it was, for me, it felt dangerous. Like his little heart is going to literally explode. Um, and so again, right around that same time, he lost his dessert and we figured out what was actually wrong with him. And after we started making the connection, pretty much overnight, we changed his diet. Um, because I had already known for myself that sugar could be an issue. To give you an example, when I was, you know, in my young wild days, if that's even a thing, um, I thought I had gotten drunk one night. I didn't. I had drink, I had, had, um, you know, like those fruity foo-foo alcoholic beverages where it's like like 3% alcohol, the rest is all fruit sugar. Yes. (laughs) I had a few of those, right? 
And I felt really drunk. And in the middle of the night, I was throwing up. But I didn't vomit alcohol. I vomited sugar. I could literally, I was literally just vomiting sugar. Um, And so I knew right then, I don't think I can have sugar. And again, it was like one of those intuitive things where nobody told me. It was just like, this isn't right. Something's wrong. Um, And so having had that experience, going through it with him, it was like, it didn't seem far-fetched to me that a person could have a problem with cane sugar and the junk that's in the American and Western food system. And so overnight, we became um, exclusive Whole Foods shoppers. You know, and our friends used to tease us that it was Whole Paycheck. But within a year of changing all of the kids' diets, so the first year that we attracted, all four kids combined had over 200 doctor's appointments in one year. No. Um, yeah, the that's a second full-time year. Job. Uh, hello, it was my full-time job, <laughs> and <laughs> like, I worked a job. Yeah, I know. I think crazy. we all joke though, like taking care of our kids and driving them places is a full-time job, but that's like legitimately a full-time job. Yeah, and on top of that, cooking, cleaning, shopping, etc. Oh, it was cray cray to the max. Um, that second year, it was either by year two or by year three, we had them down to five doctor's appointments combined. I mean, it was, and that's amazing too. Four kids, five doctor's appointments. That's like one yeah. extra on top of the yearly appointment, which is super noteworthy. Parents will know yeah. that, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's so insane. for our so for our third oldest, what where we finally realized his limits, um, I took him out one day and he was really hungry. And so I had um, snacks in the car for the kids, Mm -hmm. organic Z-bars made by Cliff Kids, nine grams of sugar per bar. At the time, I think it was like 9.9, closer to 10, maybe even 12, but because their their recipe has changed over the years. Yes. He had two Z-bars because he was hungry. Mm -hmm. He went from being mild, calm, perfectly behaved to physically rolling around on the floor, unable to control himself. Like you'd think he were having almost like a seizure. I mean, he was just rolling around. He got really loud. He just, within a matter of 20 minutes. And that's when I knew that's his limit. And so at that point, moving forward, we made it a point not to give him more than 20 grams of, sorry, excuse me, more than 20 (laughs) grams of added sugar um, in any one setting. He was still allowed to have milk sugar, uh, you know, without issue. We didn't count fruit against him just because, you know, fruit plus fiber. Right. Um, but added sugars became a thing. And over the years, we've very much monitored him. And at one point, I got him down to four grams of added sugar for an entire day. And on that day, he said it was so easy to be good. That is... I didn't have to do it. First of all, yeah. I just have to recognize how much work I know you have put into this. Like, parenting is not easy really, no matter what. I can't think of any time when parenting is easy. Um, But to be navigating all of this, to be working, I I was even just floored by the fact that you guys stuck with your 30-day moratorium on on desserts (laughs) as a punishment, because I'm always like, you will never watch TV again. And I I try really hard not to do that and then not stick to it. But it's like, I know there are other parents out there listening who are like, oh my goodness, she, they really stuck with that. That's impressive just in and of itself. And well, maybe it was something that bigger that was showing was you. In. Yeah, exactly. That tells you how much trouble he was really in. He was in a lot of trouble. 
<laughs> but you said it and stuck with it. Like those are the two yeah. But then to dig deeper and deeper, and I'm just thinking from a logistical side of like how much label reading goes into that and how much cooking from scratch goes into that, that it's like, you make it sound so like we got him down to four grams of added sugar. And I'm thinking like, oh my goodness, like you're raising great kids. I've met them. They're great kids. (laughs) And dealing with all of these things on top of it, it's just, it's a lot. And so I'm mostly just recognizing like how amazing that you did this work so that your kids could show up as the best version of themselves with the knowledge that you have helped them to uncover. And same for you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, I I think I often overlook how much work went into it, but Mm. you're not wrong. A lot of work I think that, that's a defense but, mechanism as parents in general. We is sort of like you like block out the work you've done because it's just yeah to take in and think about. Yeah, I think you're right on that one. <laughs> but okay, so that that concludes my rewind, right? I wanted to yes. get that out there yeah. because um, I think a lot of your parents could probably relate to that, you know, um, because a lot of us are dealing with feisty kids and behavior issues. And again, some of it's totally normal. Um, but what's interesting now, even as a teenager, um, on there are times where we can see it like um, increasing. We can see little issues. We'll we'll notice something. So like I don't know. Last year I noticed, you know, he was getting just a little antsy, a little bit more every single day. Well, come to find out, Carlton had been letting him have sips of his energy drinks, mm. and it was like a buildup response, you know. And then there was another incident where for dinner one night I had tried this new brand of like low no sugar supposedly good for you items and he just lost his mind I mean he went totally mental um to the point where I basically had to say to him I said look I said I I know exactly how you're feeling right now I know exactly what it's like to kind of lose your mind because of something you ate I said we're giving you one chance to literally shut up and walk away and -hmm. if you choose not to you're going to be in more trouble than you can understand right now and he literally just kind of stopped and he went to bed, you know, and mind you, I mean, it was, it's harsh language, but he was 15 at the time. You right, know, and right. He was it's, pretty it's different unruly. than a four-year-old, right? Like, Yeah, it's different than a four-year-old at that point. But, you know, to be able to recognize that in your child, I think it's important too, because, you know, it's easy to get mad at them, but it's hard to show them grace, you know? And then the next day he was like totally normal again. Mm-hmm. You know, he got it out of the system and it was like, okay, I can deal with you now. Um, and, and that's the thing. He... For some kids, yeah, it's a lot more than this. But I think that in today's society where kids are being fed a lot of junk while their bodies are still developing, mm-hmm. I think we're seeing problems related to food that people don't necessarily associate with food because it's not, I ate a peanut and I need an EpiPen. Right. Because it's that other form, right? Um, and so that gives you a whole new insight to what it means to have a food intolerance. Our child will not die if you feed him sugar. Sometimes you'll feed it to him and you won't even notice a difference. But if you feed it to him over the course of a week in little increments, by the end of the week, you'll want to scream at him. Mm-hmm. You know, and for him, it's it's a lot of little things. Like, for example, he can't control his volume. Like, for him, this is talking <laughs> quietly. And you'll tell him, you're yelling. Oh, okay, I'm not yelling anymore. <laughs> No, you're still yelling. Oh, okay. How's this? Is this better? <laughs> and you're like, um, no, not really. And then he'll try to whisper yell, and he'll keep whisper yelling to the point where he just starts yelling again. And he's just being so polite, and he's just trying to tell you a story. And it's not intentional, right? Cross, but he's yelling. 
just had a little too much stuff that he can't handle. Mm. And his volume control, he just can't do it and he can't hear it. Whereas if you remove sugar from his diet and you keep him super strict and clean, he's got a normal volume yeah. all the time. Wow. But when you take, when you just, when you give him too much all the time, he just gets loud and he can't help himself, you know? Yeah. And it's, one of those things and it's balancing and it's amazing food is so powerful and i think this is also just i'm so appreciative to you for so openly sharing these stories because i think as parents even with little kids you know i have like a four-year-old and a one-year-old it's easy to have really big expectations of them yeah and you're opening my eyes to something even beyond just realizing like these are little kids who don't yet have the foundations you're expecting them to have to do all the things you want them to do if they were adults, right? And treating them as kids who are still learning, but that sometimes there's something even deeper going on there that you have no idea about and they have no idea about that is exacerbating their ability for this like self-control and what we expect from our kids, I think more and more every day. And so I love that perspective of just like, it could be something more and empowering us as parents to do the work to dig into that because they they can do that, right? I, I love that you said that because I think for the most part, I would say 99% of children are born good. Like they just, they desire to be helpful. They want to be good. They want to please. And so, I mean, obviously for some kids, they get, you know, conditioned or they're abused or whatever, but not looking at those kids, those kids aside, just looking at your standard child who inherently is good. When they have issues, I think you're right. It's like, there's something there preventing them from, you know, being at their full potential. And we as parents, yeah, we have to do the digging and we have to do the work and it's not easy. I will tell you that firsthand. Um, It's not easy. But, it's not easy. Right, so so t- tell us where to start. So I want to, I don't yeah, want to gloss so over your, with your knowledge, the top eight and like, where, where would you begin if you were to start again and you had someone who were you like, I, okay, Kathleen, I, the allergy chef, I hear what you're saying. Um, I feel like there's something I want to dig into here. Where would you begin? So first off, I would start with know what the top eight allergies are. So the top eight, what that actually means is those are the eight items that have caused the most hospitalizations based on a food allergic response. And so in the United States, it's wheat, dairy, egg, soy, peanut, tree nut, fish, and shellfish. And so I'm going to dive in just a little bit deeper on that. Wheat is not the same as gluten. Mm-hmm. Gluten can be found, gluten is the, like the binding glue, the protein that holds it together. Gluten can be found in wheat, rye, and barley. So um, when you're celiac, it means you have a severe gluten intolerance. So you can't eat wheat, rye, barley. Um, it's not an IgG mediated or an IgE mediated response. It's a different response in the body. But at the end of the day, you still can't eat the food. Okay. Right. Um, so dairy. Dairy includes lactose, whey, um, casein, and you can have issues with one part or all parts, which is why some people are lactose intolerant, which means they can't process the sugar. Anything ending in ose, lactose, glucose, fructose, that means sugar, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas whey is the protein in milk. So when you have an allergy, you can't have um, the, the, um, sorry, my brain just... No. 
if you've got the allergy, you can't have the whey or the lactose. And for some people, um, if they also can't have casein, that generally means they can't have the dairy of any animal. So no cow, sheep, goat, buffalo, anything of that nature, right? Some people with a dairy allergy only have a cow's milk dairy allergy, which means they can have sheep's milk, goat's milk, or other forms of milk, camel's milk, et cetera. Okay. So there's that to think about. I'm sorry. I always laugh at camel's milk. Just the concept. I don't know why it's funnier than other animals milk, but it just makes me laugh. It's interesting. Uh, It's actually really great for kids with autism. We did that with uh, us. We were told it crosses the blood brain barrier and it can Mm -hmm. help with improve, you know, just different things. And we were skeptical at first and it was really expensive, like really expensive. But what's interesting after a 30 day trial, we finally realized because when he went off of it, he just started screaming at everyone. He would mm. start flipping out. And we were like, what changed? And we realized the camel's milk really did make a difference in him. Interesting. Um, it, it helped stabilize his mood. Um, well, and, but it was just too expensive to continue. Oh, my gosh. I, I have so many questions about camel's milk that we won't get into here, but we'll have a conversation another time. Like, where does one get camel's milk? Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the internet <laughs> the answers to these things, so I won't take our time. But it's funny because Gavin, my oldest, and I were just discussing the other day, like, what other animals make milk just because he likes having conversations and he wants to talk all the time. So we talk about random things. This was a conversation, and it turned out some friends who were in town had bought goat's milk, and it was in our fridge. And I was thinking, like, I don't like the taste of goat's milk because it reminds me of the cheese and I'd rather eat the cheese than drink the milk. And mm. like, oh, can I try some? And I poured him some and he really loved it. So for me, separate from this conversation about allergies, I just thought it was such a cool example of just trying different things and talking to our kids about where food comes from and how milk can serve as a really good example of that because there is more and more access to different kinds of milk right now that yeah. might also work better for our kids, bringing it back. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've got, so that covers wheat and dairy. For egg, you've got egg yolk and egg white. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, chicken, ostrich, duck, goose. You've got multiple forms of eggs. Some people can do chicken egg and not others and vice versa. So that speaks again to that no two people are the same that we had talked about, right? So you've got wheat, dairy, egg. So soy is pretty straightforward, Um, just soy. Some people can have some forms of broken down soy, um, or sometimes they can have highly fermented versions of soy, but basically soy is always soy. Um, And then peanuts are separated out from tree nuts because peanuts are actually a legume, which is in like the the bean lentil legume family. But generally a person who can't have peanuts does well with other legumes. So black beans, kidney beans, lentils, etc., most times people do fine with those items. Okay, interesting. And then you've got tree nuts, so cashew, almond, um, hazelnut, walnut, pistachio, all those types of items. Coconut is included based on what the FDA says. Um, a lot of people in the food allergy world feel that coconut should not be a tree nut because of the scientific classification, um, and they feel that the FDA just didn't know what to do about it, and mm. so they just stuck it with tree nuts. So I mean, it's called a nut, are, so I feel like I right? understand them. But I was going to ask you about that, so I'm glad you clarified. Yeah. So well, what you're saying is sometimes you could have a tree nut allergy and not necessarily be sensitive to coconut as well. And that is correct. But what's also interesting is you can be allergic to one tree nut, but not mm-hmm. all tree nuts. Mm-hmm. So you can you could be almond only, but be okay with the rest. 
But that doesn't make it easier to find food because if you're severely allergic to almond and you can't have food made in a shared facility with any tree nuts, it means that finding almond, like almond-free only food might become very difficult for you, if that makes sense. Wow. No, um, it makes perfect and, sense. Yeah. And, you know, in our case, it's funny because, I mean, it's funny, not funny. We really are the perfect family to be stricken with every allergy under the sun to serve the community better because while the community argues over tree nuts and coconut, Carlton is coconut and macadamia. So both a tree nut and coconut, like mm-hmm. he's both. Um, so for our home, it becomes a problem because most dairy-free foods are coconut-based. So if I want everyone to share a dairy-based food together, I have to get very creative. Yeah. So it just, you know, it helps people understand. Again, no two people are the same. Um, And then, of course, you have fish and shellfish. So the difference of, you know, salmon versus um, shrimp, right? So different things. Now, that's just the United States. In other countries, they include things like sesame, mustard, sulfites, oats, lupin, and a couple of other items. So depending on your country, depends on the top number. So you've got top eight. Um, Some people are starting to say top nine. The FDA is currently assessing whether or not sesame should be included in the U.S. So that's on the table right now. Um, And then you've got top 10, top 12, top 14. So that's the range of the allergens, the major allergens. Anything can be an allergen. You can be allergic to potato. You can be allergic to rice. You can be allergic to poppy seeds. You can be allergic to anything. Right. Anything can be a major allergen in your home if you're allergic to it, right? Yeah. So there's that. Now, where would I start? Usually in children, you start, if you're not seeing anaphylaxis, let's assume Let's take anaphylaxis off the table, right? Yes, Your please. Because I think dead. that one's pretty much like my kid ate this. They're having a reaction. I'm going to the hospital, and we're going to find this out, which I don't want to take lightly. That's a really big deal. But you're probably not listening to this podcast, being like, I wonder. So yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate. It. Let's take it off the table, not because it's not important, but okay. So they're not. Yeah, we're yeah, we're only we're only taking it off the table because we know how important it is. Exactly, and um, you've already called nine one one. I hope don't listen to us. Yes. Take action. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So for everyone else, where does it start? Generally, you're looking for excessive stomach aches, rashes, um, even with babies. You know, a lot of babies have skin problems. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they're free and clear. Even nursing children. So it's really interesting. I'll give you another one of our great stories. Um, there's this woman who I think is a saint. Her name's Lisa. She lives in St. Louis. And her son, Owen is deathly allergic to corn. He was born that way. Within two weeks of being born, he was knocking on death's door. And the doctors had to scramble to figure out what on earth was wrong with this child. They figured out he was severely allergic to corn and I think like two other things. Overnight, she had to go completely corn-free and corn derivative-free. Corn has over 200 names in the medical, food, and industrial world. So overnight, she had to become an expert to not kill her child. Because there aren't any formulas commercially available that are corn-free. She had to feed her child, and she was passing on the allergens through the milk. Now, I share that to say even babies can pick up the allergens through the milk, and that's something to think about. So if you're seeing excessive skin problems, whether it be eczema or just really bad red rashes, or if stool isn't, you know, going through properly, all of those things can point to a food intolerance or a food allergy. Um, With our dairy allergic child, we found out because 
Um, well, number one, he couldn't have cow's milk formula. Mm. Um, he used soy-based formula, which I'm still convinced did a number on him, poor kid, uh, because American soy, like American soy, bothers me. <laughs> but um, whole other conversation that I know yeah, we can right. dig into like, so deep. We can totally do that for another day. <laughs> um, but he had noodles that had been coated with butter. And everywhere a noodle touched his face, because children are messy, he had these red welt-looking marks on him. You know, his hands are turning red, and then he just starts throwing up everywhere. Oh, okay. my goodness. He's allergic to dairy. All it took was a couple of incidences, and you're like, oh, there's a problem, right? Yeah. Um, and so all of these things, now in his case, he's actually classified as anaphylaxis. He has a severe dairy allergy. Within a couple of bites, he will vomit everywhere. Um, he becomes very lethargic. Like multiple it, multiple organs are involved for him, so he is classified anaphylaxis. But he's not necessarily throat closing. I'm going to pass out and stop breathing anaphylaxis. There's more right. forms of anaphylaxis, right? So, so complicated. It, it you know it can be right, um, which is why again that food journal is king as far as I'm concerned because. That food journal really allows you to keep track of everything you're feeding your child um, and how much and when and all those different things. So, so if you I were seeing say, symptoms, would you start with keeping a food journal? Yes, would absolutely. Be your first step? Before, before making, as long as it's not anaphylaxis, mm -hmm. before making major changes, keep a food journal for at least four days. Five is even better. Because remember, going back to the intolerance, you can be affected up to four days or longer. Keep a very strict journal. Assume that your child is telling you 100% the truth. Take everything they say at face value. The younger your child is, the harder it will be, um, which is why I tell people that have children that are diagnosed with food allergies, don't experiment on your child until they are fully able to communicate to so age 8 to 10 and they're on board. Like, please don't just do this to your child. They're not a guinea pig. It hurts. Right. Yeah. Um, and it can be easy to forget that because they're a kid and you're not the one experiencing this pain. So right. when you're dealing with it, give yourself a checklist of questions. Um, how's their skin look? Do they seem more tired, more active, more agitated, less obedient? Like ask yourself behavioral questions. Ask yourself, are they able to communicate effectively with you? If you have a highly intelli intelligent child, like your four year old, he's highly intelligent as far as I'm concerned. Oh, well, if he you. seems to, yeah, well, if he seems like he's regressing, I would consider that a symptom Got at it. his age. Um, so look for just everything out of the ordinary. Nothing is too small. Um, keep monitoring their bathroom behavior, their sleeping patterns, all of it. Okay, then start eliminating major allergens. Start with the top okay. eight. If they do okay, maybe you're on to something. If you find that you've reached neutral by just eliminating the top eight, you would reintroduce one at a time, only one week at a time. Basically, introduce the same thing. You know, if you want to be hyper-scientific, use the same food at the same time every day. Mm. So maybe four ounces of cow's milk every day at 12 o'clock with nothing else. Don't allow anything else at the same time. That okay. way you know for a fact what it was that's causing the issue. If they do fine after that week, now you're going to introduce one scrambled egg at 12 o'clock, not with the milk by itself, right. just scrambled egg. You're going to keep notes. If you get through all eight and you realize they did fine after eight weeks on every single one, now you're looking at either an intolerance to something else or perhaps it was a packaged food, which is why that journal is king. Mm -hmm. so now you're going back and you're saying, 
oh, I always fed them Oreo cookies. Okay, now let's try an Oreo cookie. We're going to do Oreo cookie at noon every day for that week. Now we see the problem again. Okay, we know it's something in the Oreo cookie. Let's break down the ingredients of the Oreo cookie. Well, it's full of a lot of chemicals. So maybe let's start with chocolate. Let's start with cane sugar. You know, let's start with the obvious. And if you can't get them to react to the obvious, perhaps it's one of those chemicals or how it's processed. So maybe your kid, they're not going to eat Oreo cookies anymore. Right. Now, if you really want to investigate, you're going to go to an all-natural or organic type of store. You're going to buy cookies that are similar to Oreos. You're going to buy sandwich cream cookies. You're going to buy um, chocolate chip cookies or just straight-up chocolate cookies. You're going to try those. And if none of those cause a reaction, then you know it's clearly something in the Oreo, the processing of Oreo cookies or the chemicals or whatever is in an Oreo because my child can manage, you know, the butter or the cream or the sugar or the chocolate or whatever. And it's it's really a science thing. I am a scientist at heart. Um, people often ask me, you must love cooking. You must love baking. No, I actually don't. I'm a problem solver. I love science. So for me, I see everything as a giant Venn diagram and a whole series of if-thens and reactions. And that's what I see. And yes. so for us dealing with all these issues, I saw it as somewhat easy to figure out where I can see how others will struggle. I saw it as easy just because of the way my brain works. I'm very much in tune to these types of things. Um, And so it was just easier for me to figure it out, I guess. Yeah. Um, And I'm a, I'm a researcher. I love to research. I could see that because for me, who's like, I classify myself as very type B. I'm like, I don't know. It sounds like a lot of work to write things down. So one thing that I was thinking of as we were saying this is just like a pretty obvious caveat that I'm going to give here is we're not doctors and you should work with your doctor. And I think what we are really digging into is at the point where you haven't gotten an answer from your doctor, but you as a parent have this intuitive or like noticeable thing that you are working on. And this is like how you can empower yourself to dig even deeper beyond tests and those kinds of things. I think I hear so many people say like, my kid got a food allergy test and they didn't show up as allergic to anything, but they are still chronically constipated. And now I'm being told that I should give them X. And my starting point, and this has been successful with a number of people that have come to me, is just to say like, hey, you know, it's just food. You could try not giving your kid dairy for a week and just see what happens. And if you're type B like me and you're not dealing with something that's maybe like so, um, I, I don't know, like so complex, you might even just start there. And half the people that I've talked to about that so have come back to me and been like, you know, that constipation really cleared up. Like, okay, there's the start of an answer, right? And so it doesn't have to be so all or nothing. I think it can feel really daunting to those of us who aren't scientists or, you know, like so, um, what's the word I want to use? Measure analytical, analytical as you, but the same principles apply, right? Which is like the food we put in our body affects the way that we feel, and there are some like really observable things. And if we tune ourselves into them and do some of this work and start, I love how you kept saying, like, start with the most obvious thing. Like, it's not necessarily that there's this deep, dark thing wrong, like, maybe it's just the most obvious thing. And if we start there, we might get answers before we drive ourselves crazy trying to get the most complex answer. Well, and something, too, to keep in mind, because that's all awesome advice. Um, You can always have a false negative and a false positive, Mm -hmm. which is why. um, So there's a difference between skin testing and blood testing. Those are a starting point. 
But then a lot of doctors want to follow up with the oral challenge, which is feed the food to the child in an isolated experience, you know, um, so no other foods, no antihistamines in the system, et cetera, what happens. But then that's where the food journal comes in because if your child is constipated for two days after the test, but the test shows a negative to a food allergy, now you're looking at a digestive issue. So it's more of an intolerance, right? Yeah. Um, And if you were to go back to that, you know, where do I start? Eliminate wheat and dairy. Those are the two obvious ones um, from where I'm sitting. Because usually, and I'll, I'll throw this out as a very, very, very wide generalization. Usually, items such as shellfish, peanuts, and tree nuts cause the most severe anaphylactic reactions when compared to all eight as a whole. Interesting. Right? Okay, that's really and good so to know that they it's can one of those be things where too. Yeah, and so it's not to say that your child can't or won't have anaphylaxis. It just means that if you're suspecting, those are some things to keep in your mind as to where you would start if you only wanted to do like one or two things. Yeah. You know, it's not to say that tree nuts generally don't cause constipation. Generally speaking, wheat and dairy would. And so again, total generalization. And it's always important to know too that when you're dealing with food allergies, even if your child is diagnosed with a mild one, one reaction will never predict future reactions. Mm. What that means is that you can grow out of it, but it can also get worse. We've seen both. Um, And I don't say that to scare people, but so that people realize you have to take it very seriously. We've been approached by so many parents where it's like, I can't figure out why my child won't eat anymore. Okay, well, what are you feeding them? And they'll give me the list. Okay, what are you? What are they allergic to? They give me the list. They've been told by doctors it's okay to feed your child what they're allergic to, as long as it's like a mild allergy. Well, what's happening is that your child is feeling it, and they're developing an aversion to food because every time they eat, they don't feel good. And yeah. in a lot of these cases where these parents are coming to us, their kids are little. We're talking eighteen months, two right. years. Right. They don't have words you. for this. Right. Exactly. What's these going on, kids let alone how to tell you. Yes. And let's face it, kids are so intuitive. Mm-hmm. Kids, kids understand a lot more than what they let on, even before they can speak. And so if a child feels bad every time they eat something or every time you give them food, guess what? They're going to stop eating the food. And people, yeah. I, feel like I have to stress this to them. So I say, don't experiment on non-communicating children. Yeah. It hurts. And if they can't communicate it to you, what you're doing is wrong. It's like a form of torture. You just don't realize it. Um, I think going back to like what you've brought to the table, it's like you have this unique perspective because you've been through it in such a severe way that you can raise awareness in a way that those of us who haven't necessarily struggled with this in the same way can think of it, right? Like, was I uncomfortable when I was eating things that didn't serve me? Yes. Was it like overwhelming pain? No, it was just uncomfortable enough to know something wasn't right. You know, and that's, that's, I think, a really important thing to keep in mind is that we all experience it differently. And I just want to go back to what you said about allergies changing over time too, which is like the importance of working with a doctor who's really expert at this stuff. My sister-in-law had a shellfish allergy, a fish and shellfish allergy that she was diagnosed with when she was younger, but not a small child. So she like developed it over time. Her allergy got progressively worse to the point where she needed to carry an EpiPen. And then at 20 something, they were like, let's retest this in what you were saying, a food challenge situation where or an oral challenge situation where she was in a doctor's office and they were observing her. And it turns out that the 
um, fish and shellfish allergy went completely away, which is something wow. you'd only want to check with a doctor, but I think a really fascinating insight into just the way our bodies grow and change as well, and how all of this yeah. fluid and something that you were okay with growing up might also be not making you feel great now. So it, we, us adults aren't immune to having to do some of this work and be in tune with our bodies and in tune with the food as well. And I don't want to gloss over that. Like, hey, if you're not a kid, you don't have to worry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's interesting is there are some studies trying to figure out the, the loose ideas that about every seven years, the human body can go through like major shifts. Mm. Um, and so... It's interesting because oftentimes when people tell us, yeah, my kid outgrew it at age such and such, I always think of that in the back of my head. I'm like, oh, that's right around the seven-year shift. I never say it out loud, but I'm always thinking right. it, you know, um, because it can happen. It's not guaranteed um, because, again, no two people are the same. And then, of course, you have to take into account, do they have leaky gut, right? You said right. adults. Well, adults can get leaky gut or autoimmune disorders or have, like, chronic inflammation, which can all mimic food intolerances and food allergies and lead to food allergies and food intolerances developing over time. And so it's just this crazy thing. And of course, you look at, you know, undeveloped countries, you, look, you go to the middle of a jungle. Yes, yeah. they have weird, crazy diseases that we've eradicated, but they generally don't have autism, food allergies, and mental health problems. Mm. And so you have to look at that and say, what's the difference? We're all humans. It always comes back to air, water, and food. Yeah. And so it's like what you were saying, food is so powerful. Food is so powerful. Um, and yeah. I think that it's easy to forget that, you know, in mm -hmm. today's world where we're being marketed to and fed all this stuff all the time. Um, and then we just get so used to not feeling well and we're so used to a pill for every ill. And we just kind of forget to get back in touch with real food. Um, so that's, you know, just I, I agree a million percent with what you just said, if a million percent were an actual measure. And and I'm giggling over here because I ha I'm in this constant argument with my extended family. I won't call out anyone in particular. That is like not normal to have really bad gas all the time. Some oh, other yeah. people listening will identify with this. And they have so much just like accepted it as fact. Like, no, no, it's just like, it's not the food I'm eating. It's not that something I'm eating isn't right for my constitution. It's just like, that's what people have. And I'm like, they laugh at me because that was a huge part getting really way TMI. Um, that was a huge part of my identifying my problems was I had this like gas that I was like, there is something wrong with me. This is, cannot yeah. be normal. Well, and they were like, what it it's just that, normal. No, no, no. <laughs> it generally means that the body isn't breaking it down. More likely connected to the sugars and the proteins and yeah. it's literally fermenting in your gut. Yep. Your body can't break it down properly. And it smells yeah, no, like it. TMI again, but it smells yeah. like it. Hell, like, <laughs> seriously, we all know someone who has that, right? <laughs> like, so, yeah. so that could be yeah. another sign. And I love, I think you give so many actionable tips around where to start. So I really appreciate that. And I, we, we've already been talking for so long and I just want to keep going because I know you have so much to share, but I also want to direct people to where they can find out more from you. Before we do that, I am really sensitive to the fact that I'm about to have a kid in kindergarten, that it becomes part of this whole school situation. And there's a lot of talk and sometimes restrictions around the things you can bring to school. And I know for me as a parent, I just really want 
all kids to feel as included as possible. And I recognize that sometime we, sometimes we might be not being inclusive because we aren't accommodating to people with food allergies or sort of understanding what their struggle is. And I'm wondering if you have any tips for those of us who aren't dealing with food allergies in our own family. Like, how can we just be more conscientious and be more um, supportive of people who are struggling with this really big thing that shows up as a food allergy? I tell you, I've got so many tips. I'm so glad you asked, and I love that you ask. Anytime I meet someone that's mindful of it and they have no allergies and they're not dealing with it within their family, it's like we need more people like you in the world because <laughs> for our people to survive, we need you people. You know, it, it all works together. Isn't um, that true of all of us? We all need each other, yeah. right? And this is like yeah. one small element that we can be conscientious about, and I know that you have a really unique perspective on it, so I can't wait to hear the tips. So let's start with this. First off, the average is one in 13 children have a life-threatening food allergy. So that's wow. two kids per classroom. That does not include non-life-threatening. That does not include outside of the top eight. And that does not include food intolerances. And that does not include celiac disease. If you were to put all of that in, you're probably looking at closer to five and 13 kind of a thing. You can have up to 10 kids in every class that are dealing with food-based issues in today's world not saying 20 years ago, we're talking today. Right, right. Um, and that's a whole different conversation, by the way. So it <laughs> yes, sounds like we're lined up three more episodes uh, by my count. Definitely, I'll but schedule definitely. them out now. Yeah, exactly. So first off, it's always important to remember, exclude the food, not the child. Um, and we have to talk to our food allergy parents about this as well, because sometimes it's not safe for their child to participate at school for various reasons. So some ideas as a parent, number one, Ask your teacher to provide you with a list of the known allergens and intolerances um, or dietary issues in your child's class. So they might provide you with a list that says, you know, we've got three kids that are allergic to peanuts, two kids allergic to almonds, and one kid with celiac disease, which means no peanut, no tree nut, or uh, almond, or whatever the case is, and no wheat. So what that means is you can either provide non-food treats, like let's say it's a birthday party, right? Let's say your child, it's his birthday, and he wants to share with the class. So maybe you do non-food treats. So everybody gets glow sticks and coloring books um, and balloons. Well, can maybe not balloons, I've never thought of that idea, but I love it. Yeah. So you could do non-food. Um, if you were wanting to do food, based on the list I just heard, you could do an ice cream party as long as the ice cream is safe. You could do... Um, a fruit and veggie platter, you know, and have the kids make fun shapes with their fruits and vegetables. You could use sunflower seed butter as compared to a nut butter if you wanted to incorporate something like that. Um, you could do a movie with popcorn. I wouldn't do it because I'm definitely allergic to corn, but <laughs> you're not. And so right. you could bring in like, um, you know, Cars 3 and have all the kids get little bags of popcorn um, and have stickers or temporary tattoos, you know, whatever. And yeah. so there are more ways to have fun while excluding those allergenic foods without excluding the children. Yes. Um, the next thing I would say is if you don't want to go that route, but you're wanting to go a more traditional route, Ask the teacher um, to either pass on a form of communication or start an email thread or whatever the case may be with the parents of the children with allergies and say, you know, these are the items we'd like to bring in. Is there a particular brand that would be safe for your child so that we can buy that particular brand of chocolate chips or whatever? Um, nice. You know, include the parents so that the parents can have a say. Because some parents, 
they will say, my child is so allergic that if you prepare the food in your home with the allergens that you normally eat, my child cannot eat the food and I will provide something similar. So right. you're providing donuts, I'll give my kid a safe donut. And I guarantee you they're going to be so thankful that you thought to ask and that you tried to be inclusive because that's really the goal is just trying. And I love um, the idea that they're getting something similar that their parents feel really confident in as well, right? So it's like you don't have to have all the answers, but you can take responsibility for finding them and becoming like a supportive partner. It doesn't mean you have to do it all yourself, right? Like as someone yeah. who isn't as well-versed, it's probably better not to do it all yourself. Exactly. Well, and you know, to give parents, I don't, it's not, again, not to scare you, but to give you an idea of the severity of it. Um, a really close friend of ours, her aunt is a teacher and, well, was a teacher. She's retired now. There was a kid in the class, David, who was deathly allergic to eggs. And every child in the class knew it. And every child was very protective of David and made sure David never had eggs. You know, stay away from me, David. There's eggs in my lunch kind of a thing. Every kid wow. was really kind to this kid, David. And one kid, um, this little boy, it was his birthday, and his mom wanted to send in cupcakes. The teacher always made it clear to people, you can't use eggs if you're going to share with everyone, et cetera, et cetera. And so this little boy, his mother, um, was very much in the camp of food allergies are not real. And she decided she would put eggs in the cupcakes anyway. And the little boy kept telling her, don't do it, don't do it. David can't have eggs, you can't do this. And so the mom did it anyway. She was like, don't worry about it, David will be fine. And so she brought the cupcakes into class and the teacher, who's always that last line of defense, you know, reiterated, there's no eggs in this, right? Because David can't have eggs and I can't give this to David if there's eggs. And the mom was like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine for everyone. Well, the little boy pulled the teacher aside and said, I don't want to get my mommy in trouble, but my mommy lied. And the teacher was like, what? And he said, my mommy put eggs in it. And she said, there's no eggs. So the kid told on his mom, basically. Wow. And so the teacher during her lunch break went down to the corner store and got like an egg-free treat for David to have and made sure David didn't have any of this particular treat. And this is where the story takes the crazy turn. Um, and if you, you knew these people in life, real life, you'd kind of go, oh, okay, I see why she would do this because this is just her personality type. She pulled the mom aside afterwards and she said, listen, you're lucky the police aren't here arresting you today because what you did was attempted murder. If you ever do something so incredibly hubris and stupid again, I will make sure you go to jail for a very long time. You are never allowed to bring snacks to our classroom again and you don't show up for the rest of the year. I mean, she went off on this wow. mom. And just to show like you can't mess around with food allergies right. like this. And and exactly. I think that's such an extreme example, but certainly well-meaning people who aren't as well-versed in this make mistakes, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, in this case, it was malicious intent. Right, and that's cases, why it's extreme and I think it's an example, yeah. but it's like non-malicious. And so I think this idea of like partnering with the parents and being like, I just really don't know, just being honest, like this is... Yeah. This is exactly. not, I, I don't know, and I recognize that I want this kid to be included. How can I make that happen by either buying something that you specifically tell me is the thing to buy or empowering you to give them like a matching thing? To yes, that I, I can tell you as a food allergy parent, it is the most kindest, most wonderfulest thing you can ever do for us and our children is just to approach us and be flat out honest. You know, we've had teachers at the kids' schools when they were still in school um, that would approach me and say, hey, we're having such and such on Friday. Can I feed this to your child or do you need to send something? You know, they were always on top of it. And that's yeah. within private school. Now, in public schools, 
you have a little more options, you can get a 504 plan for your child. Basically, if your child has a life-threatening food allergy, it's classified as a disability, and so your child is um, allowed to have a 504 plan, which means they legally must be accommodated, and those accommodations might look like, um, you know, the parents are always informed of food that will be in the classroom, or your child needs to be separated out at lunchtime because the allergy is so severe, special hand-washing techniques that have to be used, or all desks need to be wiped down afterwards, or, you know, whatever the case may be. But that 504 plan allows your child to go to school and still be included, but legally those things need to be uh, maintained. So okay, you have those options. Yeah, so there's the 504 plan. Um, but again, just approaching and being honest and saying, look, I want your kid included. I don't think I'm capable of keeping your child safe. Um, to give you another example, I'll tell you another story since we're doing story time apparently. <laughs> Our child with the most food allergies, um, he was supposed to go to outdoor ed in the fifth grade and he was not allowed to go because um, anytime the kids go on an extended trip, I always have to send all of their food, wow. so breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, snacks, yeah. all utensils, napkins, paper towels, everything, especially for him. And this particular camp had a rule that an adult chaperone had to be willing to take responsibility for him and the food. And because he was a boy, he had to be one of the male chaperones, and Carlton couldn't go on the trip, I couldn't go on the trip, and none of the dads going felt comfortable taking on that responsibility. Sure. Because everybody knew our kid, and they all knew how severe it was, and they just, you know, they weren't comfortable. And so he wasn't allowed to go on the trip. Um, and that was fine. And so I made a whole fun week for him, and I took him different places, and the money that was supposed to go towards the trip, he got to spend it on the Lego store, and he got to go out to, like, a fancy lunch or, you know, like we did stuff. Yeah. And then Carlton took him up to the camp um, for one day. Um, he took a day off of work, and then they went up for a day, and he got to play with people. Um, and that shows you the other end of it. Sometimes there's nothing we can do. Yep. Sometimes they have to be excluded to keep them safe, and that's okay because as long as everyone's trying and it's not malicious, you know, that's all that really matters. And so when a parent says, I'm not comfortable, I'm not going to be like, well, you have to, you know, that's not okay. And if you have a food allergy parent in your life that behaves that way, shame on them, right? That's not cool. Right. Um, everybody should be like understanding and caring because at the end of the day, it's just about keeping these kids safe and helping them feel as normal as possible because they'll never feel normal, right? You can't feel normal when you're generally different or excluded, but we can try to make it a little bit easier on these kids and so by saying i can't feed your child safely what can i do or what can i buy that's specific for your kid that means the world to us it really yeah. does i um, love that and thank you so much for sharing yeah. that perspective because it's reminding me of something that i just keep coming back to lately which is like it is so easy to get caught up in the hustle and bustle of life that even when we don't intend to leave someone out or not you know include them or whatever that ends up looking like we can end up doing that. And just the importance of, especially where kids are involved, but where anyone is involved, taking a pause, thinking like, okay, what could this person need from me? And then finding ways to just ask the question can be one of the most powerful things. Like it doesn't mean you have to like clean your kitchen from top to bottom and make it allergen free and bake them a special cake. Just asking the question is sometimes 
enough to bridge that gap and really make a difference in somebody's life. It is. Well, and I would never suggest that you do that either. I would never suggest that you clean your kitchen. Uh, and that, was, one thing. that was just like a silly because, example because it's well, no, silly no, no, because like we're never going to do it, right? Like I, I don't feel like it's a great example because I think that you have some like very overachieving parents who might try to do that to be mm. inclusive. Um, and I would say don't only because um, even your pots and pans, if it's not a branding pot or pan, yeah. you know, you can still cause damage. So just asking and bridging that gap, like you said, that's the best, most amazing thing. It's like, it's a gift really. And it feels so great. Um, you know, one other thing that you can do is on back to school night where all the parents are in the classroom together and, you know, meeting the teacher, make it a point to ask on back to school night. Hey, are we dealing with any food allergies or dietary special needs that all of us parents should be aware of this year? Mm-hmm. And that kind of opens that door because some parents who are new to it, like let's say, let's look at kindergarten because it's a great age to look at. Yeah. If your child is diagnosed, let's say in July before entering kindergarten, you're just starting off this journey and you're brand new and you're really confused and you don't know what's going on. You don't know about 504 plans. You don't know how to ask for help. You don't, you just don't know. You don't know how severe it is. And you, you don't know is the only way to describe it. Yeah, and so, <laughs> I could describe it, most it of not, parenting, so I right? can totally yeah. understand how that. Even, <laughs> it may not even dawn on you to bring it to the teacher's attention right. in kindergarten. Maybe by first or second grade, you think about it because of how many times it's come up, and you kind of go, "Oh, I need a better plan." Right. But in kindergarten, you may not be thinking about it. So, if someone is being proactive and just saying it out loud, like, "Hey, do we need to deal with anything?" As you know, a village of parents. That gives that one parent who just got diagnosed like, oh, you know, little Billy just got diagnosed with a severe peanut allergy. And other parents can go, oh, wow, I'm really sorry. That's awful. What can we do? Right. And and that parent can then open a conversation and be like, you know what? I'm not sure yet. Let me talk to his doctor and I'll send you guys an email. Or, you know, maybe if we can make sure at lunchtime he doesn't eat with kids with a peanut butter sandwich and he eats by himself. That would be great, you know, whatever the case may be, but you just right. open the door and you've just made life so much easier, you know, and, you know, as a food allergy parent, there are a lot of things you have to do. You have to think about snacks at school. You have to think about class parties, et cetera. And then, of course, on the non-allergenic side, it can be tough. And I'll, I'll give you another story from, and it's kind of funny coming from me of all people, okay? Our youngest child never had, doesn't have any food allergies, okay? No food issues. And so growing up, everything was peachy. Halfway through the fourth grade, they mandated no more peanut butter. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I kind of, I, well, I kind of lost it a little bit. Not publicly, but privately, I lost it because. I'm laughing because <laughs> we've all had that feeling of like, what am I going to send? Peanut yeah. Butter, she, my jam. <laughs> she loves her peanut butter sandwiches. Peanut butter things were like the only snacks she would eat. And they were like, basically, come Monday, we're out on peanut butter in your kid's class. And I was like, excuse me? We've gone through the whole half the year, and now you choose to do this? Like, what is, like, I lost it. And you would think that me, of all people, I would be the most understanding person on the planet. But in that moment, the only person I could think about was my non-peanut allergic child who really had a thing for peanuts. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking... We've got to go out and spend like 300 bucks on new snacks and new this and new that and blah, blah, because they just chose to outlaw halfway through the school year. Like, no warning. Well, come to find out two or three years later, in her class, and mind you, in private school, the classes are just always smaller. 
in her group of, I want to say 45 kids at that point, 13 of them had peanut or tree nut allergies. Wow. 13. That's almost 50% of those kids. And then I got upset on the other end. I'm going, why didn't they outlaw this in kindergarten <laughs> when they all started together? They should have been outlawed from day one. Why yes. did they wait until halfway through the fourth grade to tell us this many kids in that particular group had an issue? Like, yeah. what happened? Right? So it's funny because I just went on a total pendulum, one of you know, from one end to the other. And so it gives you an insight where, yeah, that many kids had a problem. And no one said anything for that many years. Mm -hmm. It probably took some crazy allergic reaction from one of those kids for one of those parents to go crazy and say, I demand it be outlawed, right? Because it's a little harder in private school than it is in public. And so it just, it was a whole process. But 13 kids is a lot of kids. And on top of those 13, like another five had other issues. Like one of them had a raw carrot allergy, but only raw carrots, which I was like, oh, okay. I've heard of that before, but it is so random. Yeah. Yeah, Well, and that ties into oral allergy syndrome, which is a whole different episode. So that's episode four. Um, (laughs) Well, I think that's a perfect segue. First of all, thank you for sharing that story. It's really eye-opening because I've certainly been on I know people have been on the other side and I felt that too of like, wait, but that's what I feed my kid. I don't, I don't really know what to do. And, you know, I feel like I'm fairly well-versed. Oh good. My rainbow's starting. Um, but all of this ties into <laughs> exactly what I want to lead to next, which is you obviously have such a deep knowledge of this. You have so much to share with folks. I'm really passionate about you getting your message out there to the people who need to hear it. So I want you to tell folks where they can find you and how they can learn more from your deep expertise if this is something that is sounding like it would be useful to them. All right. So theallergychef.com. So theallergychef.com. Now that has links to everything that we do. Um, We actually offer a wide variety of services. And I'll start at the top. We've got a bakery here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that's free and friendly foods with an S at the end.com. There you can find our bakery and all of our cookbooks. And I'll put Um, all this in the show notes, just so if you guys are listening and trying to take note while you're, I don't know, trying to go to the bathroom in private while your kid's banging on the door, just as an example, something someone might be doing. We all know what that's like. Or like, you ever notice how they always ask you for stuff, like when they know you can't answer? Can I have this leftover chocolate dessert? Oh, you can't answer? (laughs) <laughs> yes. So it's going to be at um, a veryfullplate.com slash 36 is where you can find the show notes. And I'll link to all of what Kathleen is sharing here because I know there are some, you know, S's or not S's, as it were, in some places yeah. that I don't want people to miss out on. So that was free and friendly foods. By the way, I was fortunate enough to visit Kathleen and her family and to try some of the delicious baked goods from her bakery. If you are in the San Francisco Bay Area and you want to get something for someone with a food allergy or you just want a delicious treat, you cannot go wrong with this stuff. I believe what I said yesterday was like that banana chocolate cupcake that I had was like one of the best things I've eaten in recent memory. And that's saying something because I eat a lot of really tasty foods. So this is not food that will leave you thinking like, oh, it's good for gluten-free, which we've all had experience with, I would imagine. This is like delicious food legitimately, period, full stop. So I'm just in awe of it. No, that's really awesome because our two of our biggest goals uh, when we started the bakery was it had to look good and it had to taste good. 
Carlton is very offended by bad gluten-free, <laughs> and I'm very offended that food that looks ugly. So we had to make sure that, you know, everything was great. Um, fun fact, the whole reason we started the bakery was because originally it was going to be like our foot in the door to getting into the food world mm-hmm. and launching a full range of allergy-friendly freezer food. Um, and the reason why is because one day I literally just woke up with this intense fear, like, what if our our kid with most allergies, what if he wants to go to college? Like, what if he gets into MIT? How will I feed him? He's going to be on the other side of the country. And back then, you have to realize the options for people with food allergies are so limited, yeah. not like today. Yeah. And so um, it was it was a genuine fear. And so I knew then, like, we had to start thinking about, like, just how do you freeze food? And how do you do this? And how do you do that? And, and then eventually, we kind of, like, fell into the bakery by accident and Anywho, but yeah, so uh, theallergychef.com has links to everything. Freeandfriendlyfoods.com, bookshop, uh, bakery, and if you want like a t-shirt with our logo on it, in case that's ever like your thing, you can do that as well. Um, We've got the foodandlego.com blog, so foodandlego.com, and that combination of just free recipes, some random resources, things that fall out of my head, um, and of course Lego. Because we're a huge Lego family, a and huge then Lego our family. Music, yeah, I think that now that you've seen our house, would you feel like that's an understatement? I feel like it's an understatement. I mean, I I must admit I'm not a Lego person, and I've sort of avoided it in my house thus far. Like we have some Duplos, and that's really the extent of it. But this is like beyond. I have a lot of Lego. Oh, I said Legos. I have a lot of Lego. Um, it's like. Lego is the decor everywhere and your kids are clearly like super into it too, which I just love. They are so passionate about these Lego and just loved showing it to little kids, which is, I think just says a lot about them and a lot about you guys as parents. So um, yeah. neither here nor there, foodandlego.com where they can find lots of awesome free recipes and other resources. I think I've seen you have some like food reviews and stuff on there as well, different products. Yeah, our product reviews. And then, of course, there's our newest project, and it's the one that we'll be putting most of our future energy into, and that's called Raise, R-A-I-S-E. So it's raise.theallergychef.com. Cool. It's our new platform. It's a membership-based website. You can do um, silver, platinum, or diamond, and it's resources, recipes, expert interviews, uh, live cooking classes, food allergy seminars, um, just everything under the sun. And it's really great for people with either multiple food allergies or those who are newly diagnosed. Um, If you are, let's say, only gluten-free, it's not for you because there's so many reasons available already. But once you go multiple, it's really difficult to get the information that you need. And that's really where RAISE is um, leading the way. RAISE is a platform that's creating resources under one umbrella that honestly are really hard to come by in any other way. Um, and if you ever get diagnosed with a corn allergy, we are pretty much your um, only option mm. um, if you want everything in one place. Corn allergy is on the rise. It's one of the most severe. It's really difficult like soy. It's in everything. And right. Um, right. if you're a true corn allergic, meaning no corn and no corn derivatives, you have over 200 items you have to avoid. There are very few safe options for you. And that's where we step in and say, okay, look, this is the 101. This is what you can eat. This is how you cook it. Go buy these foods right now. Um, yeah. And all of that's a raised platform. Um, and it's, it, like I said, it's great for people with multiple food allergies or non-top eight allergies. 
Um, and again, with multiples, if you're just trying to figure out where to start, how do you do this, that's the place to go. We do not, and I'll say this, we don't help with diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, while we can look at a series of symptoms and say, you know, what's your food journal say? We don't help with diagnosis. I'm not Dr. Kathleen of the Allergy Chef yet, working on it, but um, <laughs> doctor's not in the title yet. And so, yeah. um, you like that. Um, I, 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 help, I have so many questions. <laughs> okay. We help. Off the recording. Yeah. We, we generally help the day after diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's the advice that I give people. Once you're diagnosed, um, there's a few things that you can do. Number one, sit and feel sorry for yourself. Like legit, feel sorry for yourself. Go oh, that's all like feelings. real Go advice. Th- You're like, please feel sorry yeah. for yourself. I'm, I'm actually I love that. Feel, feel sorry for yourself. While people will kind of feel sorry for you and have a little sympathy, they won't empathize, right? Right. Um, you have to find your village of empathizers. But in that moment, you need to feel sorry for yourself because in this country, in a westernized country, um, food is everywhere. And food is like at every celebration, and it's at every non-celebration, it's at every get-together. Food is insanely a part of our everyday lives. And yes. you just lost part of it. And it's like losing a part of yourself for some people. For people who love food or who love to cook, it's like experiencing a death. And you need to grieve it, believe it or not, because you don't want it to lead to resentment. So right. take the time to grieve your loss. Then, especially if you have a sweet tooth, eat something sweet, whether it's a date, whether it's like a super sugary fruit bowl, I don't care what it is, get some sugar in your system Mm. because the less you feel restricted, the happier you will be. I know it sounds kind of strange, especially in our health conscious world, but just trust me on this one. Yeah, You don't feel so restricted to the point of hating your diagnosis. And then the third and final thing to do, just start living. Figure out what you have to learn pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just get to doing what you need to do. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. You can totally keep eating sweets while you eat. That's okay. Nobody's going to judge you, but just start doing. Don't wait for anybody else to do it for you. Just do it. I can't think of a better place to end this conversation because I have been feeling like in so many of our conversations, the things we say about food have much larger life lessons. And, uh, there is so much life wisdom in there too around like feel the way you're feeling, find a way to feel good and just start living. Like what does that not apply to, right? What difficult life experience is that not exactly what all of us should be doing? So I will leave our listeners with those thoughts today. And Kathleen, I am just so grateful to you for taking the time, which I know is a huge resource for you as you work on all these amazing products to take time out and talk to me and bring your wisdom to our listeners. I hope that you all will check out Kathleen's resources, which will be linked at averyfullplate.com slash 36. And I would also just encourage you if you're on Instagram to follow Kathleen at The Allergy Chef. I, while I'm not dealing with food allergies myself, Kathleen, I just have a wonderful time watching your adventures, especially on Instagram stories as you like make delicious looking cheesecake in mason jars and other such things. So that, <laughs> that would be that. another... Yeah. Oh yeah, I saw that yesterday. I was like, I need cheesecake and mason jars. So beyond lots of wisdom and lots of experience that Kathleen has learned through living it out herself, she just makes really awesome food. And so if awesome food is something that you love, I wouldn't miss her Instagram feed and the recipes that she shares at Food and Lego. Thank you again, Kathleen, for being here. 
for taking your time and for sharing so much of what you have learned. I just, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you for having me. It's seriously been a pleasure and an honor to be here. And I look forward to the next four episodes. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Listen for four more episodes with Kathleen coming up. <laughs> Take care, guys. Bye.